Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. I'm talking today to Bertil Tungoden from the Norwegian School of Economics. Bertil, thanks for agreeing to do the interview. Yeah, it's fun. I look forward to it. And so over the course of your career, you have worked a lot on fairness. So basically, this is kind of your research agenda where you have done most of your work. And how did you get into this topic? It's also I got into economics because I was really interested in like poverty in the world. And I felt that that was like really something that was really um, super pressing and super hard to deal with. How should I think about this relative to my own life in Norway, which is like super easy and super good and so on. So that's basically what I um, wanted to, to study. Initially, I had in mind being a development economist. I ended up being a little bit that, but then... I felt really that how should I think about these things? So I really started going into more like philosophy, normative economics. I mean, how do we think about fairness? What is fairness? I mean, how should we understand it? What's the foundation of fairness? All these questions that, I mean, people in political philosophy study. I was one year as a PhD student at Harvard, and there, I mean, there was an amazing group of philosophers, John Rawls, Robert Notzig, Derek Buffett, all the main names were there, which also inspired me a lot. So all of that was like really responding to my, I wouldn't say personal challenge, but my feeling that I really, how should I think about this problem, right? I mean, that there is so much unfairness in life. And then I started working on, for quite some years, more like the normative stuff. I mean, doing what's called social choice theory, which is like building axiomatic models of different types of fairness and how to understand them and how to justify it and so on. And then I ended up doing an experiment because I really wanted to see whether all of this mattered for the for people's behavior, right? So it's always one thing took the other, but I mean, it started all out by this general feeling that how should I think about the world of the world of unfairness when I'm like one of the affluent ones. Um, and when you kind of started working on fairness and you wrote your first paper on this, did you kind of already envision this would be like a broad research agenda where you would work on a lot of projects on this? Or did you just say, I think I write this one project about fairness now and then I'm doing something else? So I don't think I had like this. I really had decided that I wanted to work on stuff that I was interested in. So the first paper was a paper on distributive on Rawlsian reasoning and distributive justice or something like that, which is typically not the paper you write when you are like a PhD student at the business school. <laughs> so yeah, I was really interested in it and I really wanted to work on stuff I was interested in. I didn't have like this big picture idea that this is something I will work on for like 20 years or something like that. So that, that I didn't have. Mm. You already mentioned that. So your decision to go into experiments was driven by the fact that there were interesting questions about fairness that you could answer with experiments. But do you think you would have become an experimental economist anyway? Or was it really that you think experimental economics is great to study fairness? That's a good question. So I, I was for a long time doing theory, and I like a lot of theory, and I mean, I'm working on fairness issues from this more axiomatic theoretical perspective. I think attracted to experiments because that is a little bit almost like theory. It gives you a lot of control, right? So I can see that I, and, and it's clean and it's really like, so, so it's, I think my theoretical inclinations really made me like, if I'm going to do empirical stuff, it's not a surprise that I become a, became an experimentalist. So that I think is, so it wasn't specifically for the fairness part, but that, yeah, so I, so I think that's, yeah, something I really like with experiments that I get control and I really understand, I mean, what was the process behind the data collection and everything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, control is kind of the upside of experiments and the downsides is a bit of something like external validity, at least that's like a common criticism. So 
do you try to so when you design a new experiments do you how do you think about external validity and how do you think about dealing with criticism about that maybe later on so external validity is like I, i don't know what i like the word but i can say how i think about experiments so very many people want to do experiments well when they think about experiments they think okay i want to really mimic the world in a controlled setting right so i never think like that exactly the opposite of what i think so if i'm interested in the world uh, i would think like Is there a mechanism in the world that I really would like to better understand? I mean, defense motivation or whatever, a mechanism. And now I want to have the simplest, cleanest experiment where I can study this mechanism. And it's not so, and that, and that will be like, typically not really like capturing the real world. It will be very simplistic, as you say. It will be very like uh, different from the real world, right? But, but that, If that is what I think is really like identifying the mechanism, allowing me to look at the mechanism, allowing me really to to work with the mechanism, that's that's what I want to focus on. So in some sense, I'm very much like, I'm not against it, other people like it, but I'm not the kind of guy who tries to really take the world into the lab and mimic it, right? So just to give you an example, I mean, with when I have, a, for example, tax, taxation, I mean, if I want to understand how moral motivation I mean, can affect uh, tax behavior and this kind of stuff. I would rather like to really look at, I mean, how people, how moral motivation, I mean, can be moved in the lab and then rather take that into a field experiment instead of trying to mimic like a tax setting in the lab, if you, if you see what I mean. What do you think about lab experiments versus online experiments would be like the upsides or downsides of online experiments? Labs versus online. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I will say that, I mean, we now do like all kinds of experiments. I mean, lab, online, general population. I mean, so, so I try really to do a broad range of experiments. I think that the advantage of online experiments is clearly that you get a, typically a more heterogeneous sample than in the lab, right? I mean, it's a, well, it's cost efficient, it, it can be, and you really get a large sample, right? And you can really, if you're interested in heterogeneity, you can really, um, you can really like look at uh, different subgroups with power. The downside, of course, in the online or in, the, in these kind of settings is that you lose control, right? So that's, that's always, uh, always a downside. And of course, it's, you know, it's also a downside that it's harder to really have interactions. So if you want to study interaction, that's typically harder to do in an online study than in a, in a standard lab study. So have you experienced that data quality from online experiments is a bit more noisy or what, what do you mean by like losing, losing control of, of the setting? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm meaning, do people really, I mean, in the lab, you can control whether they read instructions. I mean, that they really is, I mean, that the person responding is the person I think is responding, all this kind of stuff. In the online, you can't. I mean, and now there are like, there are worries that, I mean, other robots basically like uh, responding in this kind of stuff to collect the uh, participation fee. So uh, how much more noise you really see it? I don't think I have a good answer to that. I think it's a general worry that people have. The noise is like, of course, not that problematic. I mean, if you're looking at treatments, I mean, the problem is, I mean, if the noise or if These things are correlated with treatment, right? So, yeah. So I wouldn't be too worried. But if you ask me, I mean, people in general might be a little bit worried about the lack of control. Mm -hmm. um, and could you talk a bit about how experiments designs usually evolve from like, of your first idea that you have to the final design that you're using in the paper? So are you piloting a lot, for example? 
So piloting, I also find very hard because, I mean, if you pilot, you typically don't have power, right? So you don't have statistical power. So what do you really learn from the pilot? I mean, you can learn stuff, right? You learn whether everyone is like going in one corner, answering like going in one corner or something like that. But I do. Uh, oh, okay. So basically, I mean, how do we start? So I'm typically working in a group with people. We typically start with like having a big picture ID that we think is exciting. And that's like number one thing. If we think it's exciting, then we're happy about that. And then we try basically to simplify, right? I mean, I think the, I think way too many experiments are way too complicated. And I have this feeling that, I mean, if things get really complicated, it's super hard for the participants really to, to understand it. And then basically it becomes a test of rationality and that's not what they're interested in. I mean, that's, that's bad. So I think a lot, we really work on, uh, we really work on simplifying. We really work a lot on having others reading it and having like my family reading it and like young people reading it. It depends also a lot on, of course, um, what kind of sample we plan to do. If we do with kids, we will have a pilot with uh, one school just to see how, I mean, it's perceived in general, the focus group discussions and so on. So now we do a number of more like global studies where we try to implement the design in like 60 countries, which means I mean, very poor countries. Uh, with maybe less educated people also taking part and very rich countries. I mean, it could be less and more educated there as well, of course. And then you really want to understand whether the questions or whether the design of the experiment is really perceived in the way you want. And, and I think there is super useful to do what, uh, what you have done recently a lot is, is cognitive interviews, basically sitting down with someone who potentially could be a participant and basically work through the full, uh, setup. I mean, with the experimental design and so on. And then do probes, ask them, I mean, how did you perceive this and so on. So that, that has for me been extremely useful. So yeah. So big picture, I think. We get an idea, we get excited. That's the smell test. That's a, and then we move on, try to simplify, expose it to a lot of people. Maybe do some piloting to see that, I mean, people are not going to the extremes. And if we're then happy, we just go for it. One more thing. So you are working on a very big research agenda at the moment where you are trying to measure fairness preferences in 60 different countries. That's a very big project. Could you briefly explain what this project is about? So the project is is about really understanding, I mean, how people in different parts of the world really think about inequality. So why do we accept inequality? Big picture, we think that, I mean, partly this is because we find in some sense justifiable. So economists have for a long time really talked about, okay, people accept inequality because they make this efficiency equality trade-off. Uh, they think it's just costly to redistribute and, and we just have to accept some inequality. But I mean, the other agenda that we are pushing a lot is that people have these ideas that certain inequalities are fair, but while other inequalities are not that fair. And we really wanted to understand, I mean, to what extent this idea of a fair inequality varies across the world and how this relates to people's views on, on redistribution. And this project also takes into account here. I mean, we also want to understand not only like people's views views of fairness preferences, as we say, but also their beliefs about, I mean, what are the underlying mechanisms creating inequality because that can also clearly have an impact on, on inequality acceptance. I should say that, I mean, it's my big interest in fairness comes really from like a big interest in what I call moral motivation, where fairness is like one subcomponent of it, and which I really think is like equally important for human behavior as selfishness. So in some sense, economists have for a long time worked under the assumption that like people are selfish and let's understand the world from through the lenses of selfishness. Which I think is a, was a very healthy and useful first step. To be honest, I think the moral motivation and the fans motivation is 
in many ways, an almost equally powerful force. And I think really in order, in order to understand human behavior, we have to understand both these forces in detail and how they interact. So that's like the bigger agenda I have in mind. How was it like to get the project to work in all these different countries with different languages? What did you do to make sure that kind of the questions were framed the same in all the languages and things like that? Yeah, no, it, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, this is it was a, a, indeed a big challenge and maybe a bigger challenge that, than we thought when we started the project. So basically what we did was that we worked with Gallup World Poll. So Gallup is doing this World Poll every year in all countries in the world. And we teamed up with them and basically they, we implemented it through the World Poll. So what does that mean? That means that, I mean, we did the experiment as part of their poll in each of the countries. But before that, we had to prepare a lot. So we did a lot of cognitive interviews. So we traveled in many of the countries in Indonesia, Colombia, Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, and so on, where we were on the ground, where we met a number of potential respondents, where we presented the instruments or the experimental design and tested it out on them and discussed with them whether this was understandable and all these kind of things. Which is really interesting and really challenging because you immediately understand that, for example, a concept like risk or a concept like fairness or a concept like inequality, they have different meanings and different ways of thinking about it. And these are not easily transportable. I think the big advantage of our study was that at the bottom, there was an experiment in the sense that they were going to make, make do a real distributed decision involving money. And that is quite transportable across countries. Now, in terms of the language you mentioned, or the language issue, so we tra uh, translated this into 90 languages, uh, which is also a big thing. I mean, we didn't do it, but uh, Gallup did it, and we worked with them. And the way it worked was they did a translation, and then they gave a back translation, which they sent to us. And then we had our own team who checked this, in most cases with like natives and the different people who are fluent in different languages, not always, because in some places we didn't have our own independent people to contact, but in most cases. And then there were some challenges. Very often it was about like, we don't say it in this way, <laughs> in that language. I mean, so we just had to think about how to uh, do that. So basically it was a very demanding and extensive process. In the end, I hope and think that we managed to make it comparable, but there will always be like uncertainty about these things, but a big investment, but also uh, challenging and also very, very, I have to say, very rewarding. I mean, the cognitive interviews also meant meeting with people, talking to them about fairness, about inequality, which means a lot to people. And to just hear their views on this was, was great. So how did the timeline of this really large project look like? How long did this, for example, take to prepare the whole study so that it worked in all the different languages and countries? Uh, so, so, I mean, everything started by us doing a pilot, the project in US and Norway, which was like the pilot in terms of like just getting the experimental design in place. And this pilot is now published in JP. And we take the timeline from that. So we had like an experimental design early one year, and then we contacted Gallup. We started meetings with them early in the year, really to try to accommodate that design to uh, being implemented in 60 countries. So we had meetings with them, and then we had cognitive interviews in a number of countries from like, say, mid, from April, May until, let's say, early fall. And then in the fall, we basically worked on translation and polishing and some further cognitive interviews. And then we were ready like one year later. So first we had an experimental design from the pilot and then it took one year to adjust it or, or like fine tune it for the global thing. And then it took one year for them again to implement it actually in the countries. So, so two years basically, I think this is roughly the length. So when you were doing this, 
pilot experiment? Did you always think of this experiment as kind of a pilot for a larger scale, or did you also think of it, or did this come up later when you were already working on the Norway US pilot thing? Uh, no, so, so it was. I, we, I, to be honest, we had like many years ago really this vision or dream of doing this global kind of thing, but we didn't really ha know how to do it. So we were thinking about that for a long time. And then there were two developments that really fit together and made us think that this is maybe possible. One that we really moved towards focusing on spectator decisions. I mean, people making real decisions for others, which is easier to implement in a large scale than stakeholder decisions. And the other was that we became aware of the global world poll and we managed to convince them that uh, this could potentially be um, something that could be implemented with them. And I mean, when we realized these two things, we said, okay, but first we need to do a pilot <laughs> to be sure that, I mean, this really works. And, and yeah, so the pilot was really an integral part of the of the whole process. And if you add that, I mean, we talk about three years, maybe. Mm -hmm. three and a half, yeah. To conclude the interview, I would just like to ask some general question about your work and your work routine. First of all, could you describe how like a normal workday in the office looks like? Uh, normal workday in the office, that's interesting. So I, I always have an ambition of doing not what is a normal workday, but differently. But let me explain what is a normal day. Uh, so it's typically I'm very early. I like to be in office like from 7 or something like that, 7.30. And then, I mean, then we, I mean, I will always check my email. I very often have this idea of not doing it, but I do that. And then I try to work for some time on some project and prepare the day. And then basically the daytime will be meeting with people and chatting about different projects. I mean, so, or Skyping with international collaborators. So that is brainstorming and like, uh, or like trying to make sure that things are moving forward. And then when the afternoon comes, I mean, I like to try again to write for maybe do some writing for a couple of hours into the early evening. And sometimes when I get into the mood, I can st stay long, but sometimes I really need a break. And I think breaks are super important to get some um, energy and some ideas. And do, so, so it's like that you have a bit of specific time slots set aside for doing certain kind of work, is that right? So that you try to always have a time slot in the afternoon to do some writing and then in the morning? Yeah, so that's that's my ambition and partly what I managed to do also that, I mean, I do some working in the morning and in the afternoons and in the weekends, for the, the writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, and you mentioned so that you try not to have like a normal day, daily work. So, so what did you mean by that? Okay, the perfect day for me would be that I really managed to work until like noon, just writing, because I think really getting into writing, not checking my email even, and then maybe like after early afternoon, check my email, or maybe just regularly twice a day, check my email or something like that. So it's a lot about the email stuff because there's so many things happening. So that would be my perfect day. My afternoon work on the writing and then do some emailing, some administrative stuff, talk to people and to four or something like that, five. And then basically, I think actually I would like to have a break because I think it's great if I could exercise or something like that and then more writing in the email. So I think it's the morning where I don't manage because very often when I come to work, I mean, I meet people and start like uh, interacting before I've done all the writing. So I, I, I like writing. So that's what I miss often. Okay, great. Uh, thanks so much for the interview. Thank you.